Happy Palm Sunday. Um, I'm going to start us in prayer and then uh, move on. Dear Father God, thank you for this day and thank you for bringing us all here, Lord. Thank you for um, giving us the opportunity to worship you, Lord, and thank you for who you are and, and what this week means, Lord. Thank you for um, sending your Son and dying for us, Lord. I ask that you would um, give me your words and, and wisdom. And um your passion hours are vacation. We love you and you think. Amen. So I just wanted a bagel. Alright. I know some of you are gonna make fun of me for pronouncing bagel that way. But so I only wanted a bagel and I went in the fridge and I got I got what I thought was cream cheese and I toasted my bagel and I got it out and I I started putting cream cheese on it, and, you know, got it all on and, and started eating it, and my older brother walked in, and he looks at my bagel, and, and he looks at the, the foil package of cream cheese, and he says, Ian, you're really eating that? I was like, yeah, and it's, it's a bagel. And he, he looked at the package and he says, Ian, that's not cream cheese, that's, that's Crisco. And... And I had eaten like three-fourths of it. Like I hadn't just eaten like one bite. I had eaten like most of it. This was when I was like, I was like nine or ten. But, but I was expecting cream cheese and that's, that's what I thought I had and that's what I ate. And no, I did not finish the bagel, by the way. I decided not to. But lots of times we, we expect things, right? We don't necessarily get exactly what, what we expect. Um, and sometimes that's a bitter thing and that's a hard thing. And so today we're talking about, well, we're continuing our, our series on um, Jesus, Friend of Sinners, and we're talking about a, a little larger group of, of sinners than we've talked about before. We're talking about the Jewish people themselves. Um, so it is Palm Sunday, and I would like you to turn to Matthew 21, um, verse 1, and I will start reading there. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Then the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. So, this is the passage known as the triumphal entry. And it, it, it's called Palm Sunday because of um, some other things that, that happens later. But it's found in every single one of the Gospels. So it's in Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each one kind of has their own perspective on it. And the reason that each one has its own perspective is because each one writes to a very different audience. Matthew writes mainly to the Jews. Um, Mark mainly writes to the Romans. Luke writes mainly to the Greeks. And he's really portraying Jesus as, as man. He's trying to prove that he is the man. And um, John writes to sinners in general. And he's talking about He's, he's talking about Jesus as God, and that's really what he's trying to show. 
Matthew is trying to show Jesus as the king. And so that's why this passage is, is going to sound the way that it does. But this is near the end of Jesus' time on earth. Um, in the book of John, it tells us that it's just after he raises Lazarus from the dead. So he stayed in Bethany after raising Lazarus, and he goes from Bethany to Jerusalem, which is it's not very far between the two. But he sends two of his disciples to go get a colt in Bethphage, which was a village next to Bethany. It was it wasn't very big. No one's really sure exactly where Bethphage is. They can't really find the ruins. They did find the ruins for Bethany, and that's that's a different thing. But um, so there's this quote that is in verse five, right? It says, um, "Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey." So this is a quote out of Zechariah 9.9 and Isaiah 60-11. Um, and they should be on the screen for you guys. Um, so in we're going to first go to Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And um, the only quote that comes out of Isaiah 62.11, and the only reason that it's there, is that that starting phrase, um, daughter Zion. That's out of 62.11. The Lord has made proclamation at the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your Savior come. See his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. So it's interesting because those two passages, the... Zechariah 9.9 is really talking about Jesus as the king. And Isaiah 62 isn't talking about Jesus as the king. He's talking about Jesus as the Savior. And so there, that, that quote is there for on purpose because Matthew is really trying to tell the Jewish people and the, the readers that Jesus isn't just the king and he's not just the Savior. He's both. And to a certain extent, they get they get that um, the cult. Why the the cult is important is because that that it says it's a cult. It has never been ridden. It's unbroken. It's never had anyone ride on it. Okay, so usually you have to break some, break an animal before you can have someone ride on it. And so to have that as something that he wants to ride on just doesn't really make sense. Um, most of the other passages that, that talk, the, most of the other triumphal entry passages don't talk about two donkeys. And part of the reason why it says two donkeys in Matthew is because it's saying, hey, there were two donkeys. He could have ridden on one that was broken, that was ridden on. But he chose to ride on the one that wasn't. So I will continue in um, verse 7 of Matthew 21. They brought the donkey and colt and placed their coats on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread, spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The crowds are shouting Hosanna. Hosanna is an Aramaic term that the Jews use. It's an exclamation of like adoration and happiness. Um, it, it originally means save now. It's kind of what it, what it means. 
but the the putting down of cloaks is a sign of homage. Um, the only other time that really happens in in the Bible is in Second Kings, where Jehu becomes king. He announces that he's king to his generals, and all of his generals take and take off their outer robes and put put them down where he's sitting. The cutting of the palm branches, even though that it's like a Sunday school special, isn't really found in the Bible anywhere else. It's it comes from um, Matt in Maccabees. So during the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. Um, there's a guy named Simon Maccabeus, and he was a great diplomat, and he was um, he was really responsible, partially responsible for the political makeup that makes up the time of Jesus. And he um, he makes an alliance with Rome, and so the Romans end up fighting the Greeks partially because of that. And so he rides into the city, and as he's riding in, the people start cutting palm branches and laying them down in the street for him. Um, but so that's where that comes from. Um, the quote at the end, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, comes from Psalm 118.26. Um, so they're really, the people are really saying this is the king of Israel. This is who this is. This is They're calling him son of David. The reason that they can call him son of David is because we know from both sides of his genealogy that he is a descendant, direct descendant of David. So they, they set him up as he comes in on this cult. They set Jesus up as the king. Um, if you turn to 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16, um, I want to highlight what is known as the Davidic covenant. So lots of people, um, lots of people kind of have a hard time with the Davidic covenant because it is so focused on Israel. But um, the Davidic covenant is, um, so David decides to try and build a temple, right? And he literally says to, um, he says to the Lord, I live in a house of cedar, but you live in a tent. And he's referring to the tabernacle. There's no temple at this time, right? So he decides that he's going to build a temple. Well, God comes back through the prophet Nathan and tells him, no, no, no. You are a warrior. Your hands are stained with blood. I don't want a temple from you. But he does tell him this. So I'm going to start in uh, at the so it's 11b, the, the start of the paragraph. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with flogging inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So part of this this prophecy is about Solomon and part of it's about Jesus. But the big thing is that eventually there's going to be someone who's going to come and he's going to establish a kingdom in Israel forever and that kingdom will never end. And so that is what the Jewish people are looking for. They're waiting for someone to show up and kick the Romans out. Um, they've had, when you, when you look through history, the, the Jewish people had about 41 kings total. Um, and 
those 41 kings, some were good, some were bad, but all of them, all of them sat on a throne that wasn't perfect. It was always a throne that was, that was muddied by sin. No king did any, anything that was really, really good. I mean, you look at David, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. You look at Solomon, his wives took him away from, from, from God. Um, after that, the kingdom splits and you have just a whole run of really horrible kings. But after that, there, the Israel, the Jewish people in general are taken and they're dispersed all over the earth by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. Eventually the Persians come in, they eventually get their land back. But then there's 400 years where the Greeks take over, the Romans take over, and the only really bright light in that is the Maccabees rebellion. But because of the rebelliousness of the Jewish people, the Romans really didn't treat the Jews very well. They were always getting ready to just destroy the Jews. And that's what eventually happened. It's interesting in the account of Luke in the triumphal entry, um, it says that Jesus doesn't, it, it doesn't talk about him making it to the city. He gets to the top of the Mount of Olives and he starts crying. And the reason that he starts crying is because in 70 AD, the Romans are going to come in and it, he, he prophesies that every single stone in the city will be that no stones will be together, pretty much. And he's talking about specifically the temple. And if you go to Israel today and you go and you walk up to the top of the Temple Mount and you look down, there are these giant stones that were pushed off the Temple Mount and fell into the road, and it actually cracked the road. There's, like, depressions. There's huge rocks. But that's what that's what God is talking about. Um, so in the Jewish mind, Jesus has come to kick out the Romans. And, and some Jews are happy about it, and some Jews aren't. If you look at the end of Matthew 21, um, of the passage at verse, um, at verse 11, it says, or 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And asked, who is it? That word stirred can also be translated shaken. So the whole city was scared of what's going to happen with Jesus, because they were waiting for Jesus to get his kingdom up, and suddenly they knew that the Romans were going to come in and kill everyone. So half the city were with him, half the city weren't with him. But no one wants to call him king. Notice in verse 11, even the crowds that are calling him the son of David say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They're not saying he's the king, they're just calling him a prophet. So, the Jewish nation, we know, ends up rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. They see only the kingdom that it that would be a physical kingdom and not a spiritual one. And it was it was bitter for them. They expected cream cheese and they got Crisco and they weren't necessarily happy about it. Um, even though that Crisco on one level does the same thing that cream cheese does. But um, what does this mean for us? So God speaks to us in ways that we can understand if we are looking for. And what do I mean by that? The Jewish people, they had all the prophecies. They had all the the Old Testament. They had all of the writings of the prophets that were getting ready for Jesus. And they still missed him, mainly because they were expecting something else and they didn't want to accept the fact that Jesus was coming and he was coming in a more spiritual way than as a spiritual leader than as a physical king. 
They expected a king like Saul. And the Jewish people in general in in the Old Testament have a problem with physical physical imagery, physical pictures. Um, when they ask for a king, they ask for Saul, right? And Saul ends up hiding in the baggage train when he's supposed to be crowned king. And when he comes out, he walks out and he stands up and he, he's literally looking at the entire nation and he's a full head taller than everyone. So like, he'd be like the best guy to have on your basketball team, but he didn't play basketball. So, but, um, we need, we need to be looking and, and trying to understand what God is doing in our lives. So how does God speak to us? God speak to, speaks to us in really, really four distinct, four distinct ways. Number one, He speaks to us through His Word and through praying to so It's super important that when we're reading the Bible that we don't just take and take our understanding and jump into it. We need to also be praying and looking for His illumination. Um, number two, He speaks to us through other people. Um, other people sometimes have great things that God is saying to them that we need to hear. Our own learning and study. Um, I hadn't thought of this one until recently I taught for um, Fun Club on Wednesday night. And um, it talked about our own questions and curiosity in, in the curriculum that we're using. I, I hadn't thought about that, that our own curiosities and the things that we're pursuing, God sometimes leads us in that way and talks to us. And our, our final, finally, our conscience, which I think is the least clear of all the ways that God speaks to us. Lots of times um, God speaks to us through our conscience, but it, it can be muddled. We can't, our conscience is ours. It's not necessarily um, God's. So how do we know if it is God speaking to us? I, I think one of the big things is look at his word. If his word says something that's similar to that, I think that's God talking to us. Um, number two for, for takeaways. God is faithful. I mean, you think of the amount of time between David and Jesus. I mean, it's, it's a thousand years. But God was still faithful in bringing the king. He was still faithful in bringing the Savior king to earth. Um, even when it's not what or how we expect it, God is ever faithful. Always. Um, and finally, the crown and the cross are inseparable. Christ's kingship hinges on his sacrifice for his people. Lots of times we like to embrace the idea of salvation, right? We like to think that God is our Savior, and that's what we focus on. We focus on the fact that he died for us, and that's it. But because he died for us and rose again, he also is the king. And so that means that we also have to give our homage to the king. Um, in Samuel, when when Saul is going to be king, God outlines what the human evil king is going to take away from them, and it's it's a long list, and it's every single area of of their lives. I mean, it's livestock, it's their kids, it's their horses, it's their time, it's their money. They they take all of that now. Does God demand that we give him all that? No, he demands that we give him everything, which is which is different. Um, but 
my question to you then, which parts of your lives are you not giving to God? Lots of times it's easy to prioritize and we like to make a list, right? So we do like God first and then we do country and then we do family and then we do friends. I don't think that's as effective as in every single area of your life is God evident at church, at home, um, with your wife, with your kids, uh, with that one friend that you hang out with who does those weird things that you don't necessarily want him to do, right? But in, in your jokes, is every single area of your life permeated with God? Is, it, is Jesus the king of that as well as the Savior of your life? Um, I think of when I was in college, I had a couple of friends who were, they were nice guys, they were from Wisconsin, so they were good. And um, they were really good guys, but they had um, this idea about swearing. And they believed that swearing was a completely and only cultural issue. It was not a moral issue at all. So they thought swearing was completely fine. It wasn't a big deal. Because God wasn't the one that was telling us not to swear. It was the culture telling us not to swear. So I, I hung out with them some. But eventually I realized that my language was changing and I wasn't getting any better. It wasn't helping me at all. And there are passages that, like in Ephesians, that talk about the fact that there should be no filthy language in, in, your, in your mouth. And... The fact of the matter is that we're supposed to have our minds dwelling on other things. So I changed. Like I said, I can't, I can't keep doing this. I ended up not hanging out with those guys because they didn't want to change their language and I couldn't, I couldn't keep following them down that path. So with Easter coming up, it's easy to see Jesus as the Savior. I think it's a lot harder to see Jesus as King and Savior. So this Easter, please look at the crown, look at your life. Look at who Jesus was and allow him to be both rather than just one. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for our time together, Lord. I ask that you would help us to have a good Easter week, help us to focus on you, and not to forget that you are the king of everything, Lord, that you you meet us where we're at, that you help us to understand who you are rather than just um, rather than just taking us and, and trying to uh, trying to make us better, Lord, I thank you that you first show who you are to us, where we're at, rather than expecting us to become more righteous or, or better in some way. I ask your blessing on this week with Easter coming up and just give us a little bit of a day. We do thank you so much.